Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus. That there is life in Jesus, forgiveness in Jesus, hope in Jesus. That because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we are able to think about our circumstances in a fresh way. And Lord, I pray for that person who is here this morning, hurt and broken, confused or perhaps terrified. Lord, their marriage seems to be falling apart at the seams. They are living under a pile of monstrous debt. They have experienced a life-changing circumstance and they seem consumed by sorrow or racked by guilt. Lord, we pray that this morning you would minister to them, that you would speak to their hearts, that you would turn sorrow into joy, and that you would transform a broken heart into a heart full of love and joy in you. We commit these things to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16, it says, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father... They said, therefore, what is this that he says? A little while. We don't know what he's saying. Now, Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. And he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me. And have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. 
Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this, we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come. That you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the father is with me. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You know, one of the most difficult things about being a Bible teacher is to take something that is very, very complicated and try to make it simple. It's to take something that is very, very complex and try to make it understandable. To make something that seems distant and make it obtainable. To make something that seems covered with barriers and make it accessible. And John chapter 16 has been that kind of a chapter. Over and over again, we are introduced to the reality that the disciples are hurt and they are broken and they are confused and they are terrified. They simply haven't been able to receive the message that their Savior is going to be taken from them. And Jesus has spoken gently, but firmly, repeatedly, that he will be taken, that he will be arrested, that he will be killed, that he will come back to life over and over again. He has told the disciples that they've got to go to Jerusalem. The religious leaders will take him, that they will crucify him. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles and he's going to come back to life. And over and over and over again, they've not been able to comprehend, understand what is happening We've already learned Jesus must go and prepare a place for them and send the Holy Spirit to prepare us for that place. The ministry of Jesus has brought great blessing, but now greater blessing will take place through the work of the Holy Spirit because it will magnify and multiply the work of Christ. We learned that the Holy Spirit convicts the world in verses 1 through 11, that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin in verse 9, of righteousness in verse 10, of judgment in verse 11. The Spirit instructs and counsels and encourages the believer in verses 12 through 15. And with that encouragement comes specific instructions. As we journey through this particular text, it says, in that day, in verse 23, and it's the hinge verse. What day is that? In that day, is it the day that he rises from the dead? Is it the day that he journeys for the 40 days with his own disciples? Is it the day that he ascends into heaven? Or is it in that day when the Holy Spirit comes and makes abundantly clear the life, the death, the resurrection and the fundamental ministry of Jesus clear to everyone involved with encouragement and with the Holy Spirit. 
the believer will experience a newfound access to the Father and effective prayer through the Spirit. In sorrow, Jesus speaks of joy in verse 20 through 22. In verse 24, in verse 33, you see the word joy appearing over and over again. And the simple principle in this passage is that it is the Lord God, it is the Father who brings joy. And how does the Father bring joy? The Father brings joy not by simply substituting our sorrow for joy, but transforming our sorrow into joy. And he gives an illustration. The Lord Jesus gives an illustration of a woman giving birth, which makes it unmistakably clear the same baby that brought the pain, the same baby that creates a mechanism and causes pain will eventually bring joy and cause joy. The person in pain, the person in sorrow, the person who's been crushed by sad circumstances or sad news often finds it difficult to imagine a time. When you're free from the pain and you're free from the sorrow, it never feels like joy is available when your life is falling apart, when your husband has left you or your wife has left you or the doctor reports that you have a disease that's going to test every fiber in your body. The cross of Calvary looms large in the distance, but that cross, the source of so much pain and so much humiliation is also going to be the portal, the gateway, the road that Jesus takes back to the Father. Jesus is going to rise from the dead and he's going to return to the Father. And in the text, Jesus speaks of A little while. You see the statement made over and over again. A little while in verse 16 through 19. A little weeping. A little word. A little wait. But time seems to stand still. When you're in pain. And sorrow serves like a concussion. We are numb and inattentive. The words of Jesus seem spoken like they're underwater or under pressure. We read a little while and it seems like forever. We read a little weeping and it seems like endless floods. We read a little word and we think, how can I understand what's being said? We read a little wait, but the sorrow seems to drag on and on and on. I don't think she would mind. I received an email earlier this week. I met a lady this year under the most unusual circumstances. It was snowing terribly and I was trying to turn into our parking lot and I hit a sheet of ice and I slid right into her and crashed into her car. And she writes and she says, hi, do you remember me? She said, we had a little crash. It was actually me. She was absolutely standing still. And she writes and she says, could you please put my son in your prayers? And she tells the story of her son who 
earlier was diagnosed with leukemia and tragically he suffered a relapse in March and they've been undergoing bone marrow transplant since mid-July. And she writes in her letter, her email to me, she says, we've spent a lot of time at the hospital in the last few months and some days it feels endless. If we aren't coming to the clinic for chemo or a checkup, we're coming in for fevers and he's been admitted for the hospital stay. This has turned our life upside down. And she goes on to talk the way that a mother talks about her child. To try and understand what's happening to her child. Wondering how she is going to have the strength and the knowledge to stand tall in the midst of the circumstance that she faces. And she asks us to pray. And we will pray. And we do pray. The resurrection may seem like so much theobabble, religious words to make religious people feel better about their not-so-religious circumstances. But the resurrection isn't simply a theological concept to make hurting people feel better about their bad situation. The resurrection provides principles that if we will lay hold of those principles, not simply with our head, but with our heart, we can understand something. That these promises that we believe and the position that we embrace is to move us from immaturity to maturity. It's to move us from independence from God to dependence upon the Lord. And it begins with the perplexity of the coming resurrection. Look what it says in verse 16 again. Jesus says, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. There seems to be some dispute among scholars because the phrase, because I go to the Father, doesn't necessarily appear in the original manuscript or the autograph. The clause is contained in verse 10. We know he's going to the Father. It's repeated in verse 17. We know he's going to the Father. So what does this mean? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. For those of us who have the perspective of hindsight, it's very clear what's going to happen. We know in a little while he is going to be dead. And they're not going to see him. We know that in a little while, three days after his death, he's going to come back to life. We know that he is going to interact with the disciples for some 40 days and then he's going to ascend into heaven. And then Jesus says, and you will see me. Because I go to the Father. And the disciples do what many of us do. In verse 17 it says, Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. The disciples don't seem to grasp the words of Jesus. They do what we often do. They begin a discussion among themselves. 
I see it from time to time. Even though you don't see me seeing you nudging your wife and nudging your husband and pushing your son or pushing your daughter or poking the person next to you. What's he saying? I don't understand what Gina's saying. He's not making sense to me or this particular passage isn't making sense to me. And so they begin to discuss among themselves the meaning of the words. Because they're a little bit frightened. A little bit fearful to ask Jesus. Because in the past when they've asked Jesus like, excuse me, Lord, what is it that you mean? How can you not understand what I mean? Look at my lips. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me. They're going to kill me. And three days later, I'm coming back to life. What part of that don't you understand? We don't understand any of it. Because guess what? They're living in a world where when people died, they don't come back to life. People have assumed that people living in the first century were idiots. That they were somehow farm people who were living in la-la land, victims of fear and superstition. They grew up in a world when people died, they stayed dead. So that if a person said, I'm coming back to life, their tendency was not to believe it or to think it means something other than what it's saying. Just like people today. In verse 18, they said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's saying. He's speaking of his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven and the return of the Holy Spirit. But it is very, very clear that the concept and the fact of resurrection continues to perplex people. Broadly, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who deny the resurrection and those who affirm the resurrection. Now, clearly, there is that person in the middle who perhaps for whatever reason, the jury is out in their thinking. They're willing to entertain the notion that a resurrection may take place, but their tendency is to doubt it. Those who embrace a naturalist or a materialist worldview who believe that the universe is a vast, mysterious place of matter and energy who postulate the existence of multiple universes or or multiple um, dimensions reject the presence of any supernatural force. They can't believe that that there are cosmic Forces at work that can reassemble and reunite the composite particles that are distinctly you. I get it on the radio program all the time. How can the resurrection possibly be true? When people die, they're dead. The body goes into the dirt. The worms crawl in. The worms crawl out. The worms play pinnacle on your snout. The body decomposes. It provides food for the grass. The cow comes, eats the grass. They milk the cow, drink the milk, and you're... Your molecules get scattered all over the universe. How can God bring them back together? And I tell them, the opening line in the book called Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you can believe that, if you can believe the first sentence in the book, the rest will become progressively easier. Because a God who can create the heavens and the earth and everything that is in the heavens and the earth, there, there's no prohibitions or, or restrictions on that kind of power. 
John Burden Sanderson Haldane was a very famous geneticist and evolutionary biologist, and he was not a believer by any stretch of the imagination. Haldane said, quote, it is my supposition that the universe is not only queerer than we can imagine, it's queerer than we can imagine. He's not a believer by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis wrote his space trilogy in response to Haldane's popular lectures on science. And C.S. Lewis considered Haldane a very immoral man. Haldane willed his body to science and he wrote in his final will and testament, quote, my body has been used for both purposes. He's talking about scientific and non-scientific. He's talking about moral and non-moral or immoral, if we might say. My body has been used for both purposes during my lifetime and after my death, whether I continue to exist or not, I shall have no further use for it and desire that it shall be used by others. Its refrigeration, if this is possible, should be a first charge to my estate. It was Haldane who wanted to be cryogenically frozen in the hopes that someone would be able to revive him because he was completely dismissive of a resurrection. It was Arthur C. Clarke, who was one of the great fiction writers of all time, who wrote what's been popularly been characterized as the three laws. And, and Arthur C. Clarke wrote for the first law, number one, when a distinguished but elderly scientist says something is possible... He is almost certainly right when he says it is impossible. He's most probably wrong. Law number two. But the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And law number three, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And you might be wondering, why do I share Arthur C. Clarke's laws with you? Because Jesus is suggesting the impossible. That human beings could come back to life. And clearly Jesus isn't embracing some advanced technology. He is born of a young woman in Bethlehem. He is born and raised in Nazareth. He grows up in first century Judaism on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. He doesn't have access to an iPhone or an Internet. Some people are open but they're unconvinced concerning the resurrection. And that might be you. In verse 19, it says, Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Jesus is in effect saying, you want to know what I mean, don't you? Haven't you ever picked up your Bible, opened the page, read a text and says, could you help me out? I'm not getting exactly what it is that I'm reading. Look what it says in verse 20. Most assuredly, I say to you, 
that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Remember, every time we've seen those words together, most assuredly, some of you have Bibles that translate that truly, truly or verily, verily. And every time we've come upon it in the text, I've reminded you that it's an idiomatic expression that Jesus used to bring attention to the fact that what he's saying is absolutely true. And we've already addressed the issue. Well, does that mean that the rest of the stuff he said isn't really true? No. It is true, and he wants to draw particular attention to this truth. He is, in effect, saying, please believe, because what I'm about to say to you is absolutely true. He says, you will weep, and you will lament. Oddly enough, that phrase should give you some comfort. Because there are tragic things that happen in our life. There are painful circumstances that we face. There are unbelievable choices that people often have to make and it brings sorrow and it brings pain. There's a reason why you feel bad when your husband walks out the door or your wife walks out the door or the doctor delivers the the diagnosis. There's a reason why when you feel the world crumbling all around you, that it is hurtful and painful when people you love betray you. It's because your marriage is important. It's because your children are important. It's because your circumstances are important. Your marriage matters. Your life matters. It says, but the world will rejoice. And you have to wonder, how is such a thing possible? How is it possible that the world will rejoice? The world will rejoice because the world doesn't want the Lord Jesus Christ or his church. The world rejoices while Christians suffer. The world rejoices. And the reason why the world rejoices, particularly when it comes to the official and immediate context in the minds of the religious leaders, they have been gunning for Jesus. It is their hope and desire that they can find him and trap him and kill him and get rid of him. They want to prove that he's no different from anyone else. They want to prove that he's not really the son of God. They want to prove that his death is the death of a self-described savior. And once he's dead, they're done with him. Death would prove that Jesus' claims are false and that his commands and demands aren't binding. That his life is no more meaningful than anyone else's life. Human beings don't have to follow him. They don't have to pick up their cross. They don't have to follow him. Our sorrow will remain a sorrow because his life is no different from any other life. And that's exactly why there's a perverse pleasure that people have around you when your marriage is suffering When you're experiencing pain and depression and heartache. Because they 
want to believe that you're exactly like they are and that your circumstances are exactly like that theirs and that your religion and your faith and your friendship with Jesus is a fraud and the circumstances and the pain and the sorrow that you experience is just like everybody else. And so there is this perverse pleasure that takes place when you react exactly how they react. Because your faith doesn't really matter. That's why the world rejoices when Christians suffer. But Jesus says, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Jesus isn't simply talking about substituting sorrow for joy. He's not talking about simply substituting fear for love or heartache for wholesomeness. The Lord is going to transform the circumstance, transform it in such a way that you will be fundamentally different. And he gives an example In verse 21, it says a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. I know some of you ladies might think, hey, wait a minute. I take exception to that verse. I quite literally remember. As a matter of fact, like a flood, it's all coming back to me. The text isn't suggesting that you remember that you've forgotten that it's painful to have a child. What the text is suggesting is that in relationship to the pain of having that child, the joy of having that child, the reality of, 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 of the importance of that child takes over. It's like, you know, all of the bad Bill Cosby jokes about women in labor. The expression translated, she is in labor, is one Greek small word, tikto, which means give birth to. And the deep mystery that Jesus is saying is that every woman who has ever had a baby knows that one minute in labor seems like an hour and then an hour seems like forever. You know, I believe that there's a space-time rift. There's a vortex. There's a temporal universe that exists in every dentist's chair. That once you sit down in that dental chair, time stops. You literally can look at the clock and it goes, talk, talk, talk. And And the doctor says, this won't hurt a bit. And you know, he's lying. The reality is that our circumstances change, our feelings change, time changes when our feeling changes. That's what he's talking about. When my wife was giving birth to our third child, we had a doctor from India. His name was Jitindra Bhatt. 
And Jitendra Bhatt thought that the way that we passed the time while my wife is in labor was to tell me amusing stories. So there's Mary. She's huffing and puffing, desperately trying to give birth to Jonathan. And Jitendra Bhatt, my doctor, says, let me, Mr. Dredge, let me tell you a story. This man comes into the doctor's office and says, I've got very bad news for you. You only have one year to live. And the man said, oh, doctor, doctor, this is horrible, horrible. I only have one year to live. I only have one year to live. Oh, doctor, doctor, what must I do? And the doctor said, my advice to you is to marry a Jewish woman. Because your one year will seem like many years. And when you die, you will be glad to be gone. You know, it's almost incomprehensible to us that when Peter writes and he says that the burden of affliction that we experience in the here and the, and the, and the now, the weight, the, what he calls it, is the light affliction. And it becomes the weight of glory. And in verse 22, Jesus says, Therefore, you now have sorrow, but... But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. I don't know if you're the kind of person who underlines their Bible, but those words in verse 22 where he says, But I will see you again is the most cruel and perverse and wicked thing that a person could ever say. For it's true. And there, ladies and gentlemen, is the crux of the gospel. Franz Kafka, the atheistic existentialist, famously said, the meaning of life is that it ends. And Jesus, 2,000 years earlier, not just simply suggests, but proclaims the meaning of life is not that it ends, that there is life and that it goes on. It survives the circumstances that you find yourself in. And later we're going to see that Jesus says that he's come from the Father and that he's lived on this earth and that he represents the, the Father to anyone who's willing to listen to him. The immediate application is that you will see me. Your sorrow will soon become joy. And the ultimate application applies to every Christian in every age who has ever experienced death. Your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your child. The believer's joy is in the knowledge that Jesus really did rise from the dead, but it's more than that. It's more than just simply the historical event of Jesus coming back to life. That death and resurrection allows for the hope and the possibility of forgiveness of sins and abundant life 
The joy is permanent and deep-seated and unmovable because the trials and the sorrows come. But when we experience those trials and sorrows, we always have it in the backdrop of a resurrection. We're given permission to weigh our current suffering against the coming glory. And it isn't simply the historical fact that Jesus cheats death. But now you get to cheat death. You get to come back to life. Now we begin to understand what Jesus has said earlier in John 14, when he's, in John 11, when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And then in John 14, when he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And in verse 23, it says, and in that day, you will ask me nothing. Oh, there's a clue. A clue, because the day that Jesus rose from the dead, didn't Mary ask him questions? Yeah. The 40-day journey between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, didn't the disciples ask him a lot of things? But he says, in that day you will ask me nothing. What day? I'm going to suggest to you, it's the day... That he ascends into heaven and the following day, the Holy Spirit in the context in which we have been reading. Remember that Jesus is going away to prepare a place for you and the Holy Spirit now comes to prepare you for that place. Jesus is literally physically gone. He is unavailable to ask questions. And so you're going to ask questions of the father. In the name of the Son. By the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. The word translated ask is very interesting. The first ask is eroteo. It means to ask a question. But then he says, but you will ask the father. Look at the bottom of verse 23. Whatever you ask the father, the word translated ask is a different Greek word. It's the Greek word iteo, which means a petition or a plea that an inferior gives to a superior for someone who has something that is desperately needed by the person who's begging the supplication or the petition. Here's the idea. You need questions answered for the sorrow, for the pain, for the emptiness. And the Lord's going to provide answers. As a matter of fact, that's why I believe that he's making reference to his ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 24, look what it says. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Up until this time, if they needed to ask Jesus anything, he's right there. Hey, Jesus. What about this and what about that? Or if they prayed, they prayed to the Father like an observant Jew. 
But again, it says, ask and you will receive. Once again, the verb translated ask is apteo. Ask for something. And here is the idea. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. The implication being that the death and the resurrection of Jesus is going to result in access to the Father by everyone who loves the Son. You have access to God. You can approach God. You can talk to God. You can make your petitions and your circumstances known to God. And when we ask in Jesus' name, it isn't a magical formula that Christians use to get stuff that they shouldn't have. If I go, oh, Heavenly Father, uh, that portion 911, it's a thing of beauty. Yellow. I want... Because it's such a happy color. With saddle seats in Jesus' name. Is that what it's talking about? That you can ask for anything and you get anything? No. It means we ask in Jesus' name. That means we ask in a way that is consistent with Christ's character and Christ's counsel and Christ's will. And because it's consistent with Christ's character and Christ's counsel and Christ's will, we know that we can have it. We can have freedom and we can have peace and we can have forgiveness and we can have hope and we can have joy. And look what it says in verse 25. These things... I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. The word translated figurative language is paromia. It's a word that was used in the ancient world to describe a riddle or an enigma or something that was difficult to understand. The word could be translated a saying that is difficult or hard to understand. And so now Jesus is going to take something difficult or hard to understand and he's going to make it plain. And it says in verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. Does this mean that the intercessory ministry of Jesus is gone? That he's not really seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you? No, that's not what that means. It means in that day you will ask in my name. And he clarifies exactly what he means in verse 27 when he says, For the Father himself loves you because you've loved me. And have believed that I came forth from the Father. This is an astonishing verse. Loves you and loves me is both translated from the same Greek verb. In both cases, it's phileo, which was the ancient word used to describe the strong bond and affectionate feelings that a father and a mother had for their children. Or the children have for their parents. It's a strong word that speaks of the depths of affection. And the statement is stunning. The Father loves you. It's not simply the content of the statement that's overwhelming. 
It's the timing. Jesus is saying this before he goes to the cross, before he rises from the dead, before the cross, before Jesus dies on the cross. He tells the disciples that the father loves them. Isn't that amazing? Barclay writes, quote, he did not die to change God into love. He died to tell us that God is love. He came not because God so hated the world, but because he so loved the world. Jesus brought to men the love of God. And now it's plain. And now it's clear. God doesn't hate you. He loves you. And that the feelings that God experiences moment by moment for you is a strong bond of of compassion and affection. Jesus has told us something about the Father. Jesus has revealed the Father's compassion. The Father cares for those who are gripped by sin and by death. He cares about salvation. The Father's willingness to save us from the bondage of sin and death. Of the Father's power. The Father's power. His ability to carry out that plan by sending Jesus and preserving Jesus and raising Jesus from the dead. And He hasn't just simply taught about affection and compassion and salvation and power, but He's also spoken of the Father's justice. Because the Father is just, He will not allow someone who is completely innocent, someone unjustly killed, to remain dead. And He will raise Him from the grave. And now we understand Peter. When he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that never fades away, reserved in heaven for you. Compassionate. Affectionate, loving, saving, powerful, merciful. And in verse 28, the whole of the gospel is contained in verse 28. From Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of the book of Resurrection. Revelation in John 16:28 if you were to sum up the bible in a single sentence it's this sentence I came forth from the father and have come into the world again I leave the world and go to the father You know what that speaks of the incarnation of Jesus The life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. And Jesus makes the powerful statement that this is the sum 
and the substance of who he is and what he's done. Look at verse 29. His disciples said to him, see, now you're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. It's the same word, paramia. You've cut to the chase. Verse 30. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. Eroteo. You, you have no, there's nothing for Jesus to be questioned about in the sense that he can't question anyone because he knows everything. This is a powerful declaration of his deity. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Do you understand what's happening? The disciples say, we understand what you're saying. They affirm their understanding. They affirm their faith. They affirm their assurance. Jesus has told the disciples. Let's just recap quickly. Jesus has told the disciples something about the Holy Spirit. True or false? True. Jesus has told them about how to transform sorrow into joy. True. They've listened to Jesus teaching on the revelation of the Father. That That God is love and compassion and power and salvation and mercy and hope. The disciples have been assured of God's love. This is all pretty heady stuff. But here's the question. Is it possible to understand? Is it possible to have faith? Is it possible to have assurance? And you still fail the Lord. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, unless we practice that faith, unless we apply that understanding, unless we rest on that assurance, we will fail when the time of testing comes. That is what happened to the disciples. And Jesus warned them. That that would happen. Look at verse 31. Jesus answered them. Do you now believe? Jesus asked them a bigger question. A sobering question. This is the question that each person is confronted with. At least once. And sometimes they're confronted over and over and over again. Do you believe what Jesus has said about himself? And look what he says in verse 32. Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Question. Will their failure change God's plan? Will their failure change God's Messiah? Will their failure change the cross? Will their failure change the resurrection? Guess what? Neither will your failure. 
your failure will not change the character of God, the will of God. Your failure will not change the character of Jesus or the will of Jesus. Jesus quotes the scripture against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. Jesus knows in advance every right thing, every wrong thing, every doubt, every failure. And look what it says in verse 33. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus draws attention to the fact, these things I've spoken to you that in me you might have peace. Not in you. Not in your success or in your failure. George Morrison defined peace as the possession of adequate resources. Isn't that good? Peace is the possession of adequate resources. And Jesus has promised that he will give you adequate resources to face the sorrow, face the pain, face the tribulation, face the circumstances, and walk with him in submission and obedience. John will later write in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. He's not talking about religious faith. He's not talking about Roman Catholicism or Protestantism. He isn't even talking about evangelical Christianity. He's talking about confidence in the person of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And now Christ's attention is going to be turned to the subject of prayer. Because that's what his disciples are going to need. The resurrection turns sorrow into joy. Jesus transforms sorrow into joy, but the principle makes no sense and has no meaning unless we believe the promise and unless we pray. And God has ordained that his work is accomplished through believing prayer. And he'll have a whole lot more to say about our position as conquerors in Jesus Prayer isn't the last extremity. It's the first necessity. Is it possible to know these things and fail the Lord? Yeah, we know now that the answer is yes. But you know what prayer will do? Prayer will put backbone into your wishbone. And that's what we're going to be focusing on when next we meet. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you're not just interested that we know more stuff, but that, Lord, we be different men and women.
Lord, we pray that in the time of tribulation, in the time of sorrow, in the time of pain, in the time of deprivation, in the time of hurt, that we as men and women of God would bring ourselves to believe the promises of God. That, Lord, you take a cross and you transform it, not simply substituting our sorrow for joy, but you transform our sorrow. As our very sorrow becomes the mechanism whereby we depend upon you. Our depression becomes not independence from you, but dependence upon you. That our grief and our guilt become the very, very stuff that makes it possible for us to love you and to trust you and to submit ourselves to you and then obey you. And Lord, we pray. We pray for little Jackson who's been diagnosed with leukemia. Lord, we pray for his mom and we pray for his dad and we pray for him. We pray that the stuff that has caused so much sorrow will bring about profound commitment, deep trust as they walk through a difficult valley. And Lord, we pray that you would heal their child. And if for whatever reason, Lord, you choose not to, Lord, we pray that you would make their shoulders bigger and stronger. In Jesus' name, amen.